It was late. Stephanie and Craig Rabinowitz were unwinding after a dinner out with her parents, celebrating the end of Passover. Maybe it was too much coffee with dinner or the extra cup with her parents after they came back to the Rabinowitz house for a visit at the end of their evening. But Stephanie couldn't sleep. She put her daughter Haley to bed, her precious little girl who would soon be a year old. Craig turned on the Flyers game while Stephanie drew a bath for herself. Days juggling her career as an attorney with a successful law firm, becoming a mother, being a doting wife, a good friend among a terrific circle of couples who were always in and out of the Rabinowitz home, well, Stephanie had her hands full. She had a lot on her mind that week, planning her daughter Haley's first birthday. Her own birthday was just two months away, and she was turning 30. That's a huge milestone for a young woman. Some look at it with disdain, as if they're giving up their roaring 20s. Craig's business was starting to pick up a little steam. He'd met a man in New York City who had connections with importers, and he could open doors for her husband. They'd just had a lovely evening out with her parents. Stephanie's life was good. And yet on this night, Tuesday, April 29th, in 1997, Stephanie couldn't turn off her racing thoughts. A long, hot bath was just what she needed. Craig, ever the Philadelphia sports fan, was sucked into the game, following the streaks of orange and black as the Flyers raced across the TV screen. And before he knew it, close to an hour had passed. He got up to check on Stephanie and found his wife unconscious in the bathtub. It was a horrible accident. Had Stephanie hit her head? Did she fall asleep in the tub? It appeared as if Stephanie Rabinowitz drowned in her own bathtub at just 29 years old a few feet away from where her husband watched television. Quickly, we learned nothing about Stephanie's death or her marriage to Craig Rabinowitz was what it seemed. I'm Dina Marie, your host on this Twisted Journey. Welcome to Twisted Philly. There's more mischief, mayhem, and nefarious goings-on in the city of brotherly love than Billy Penn could have ever imagined. We've got it all here on the Twisted Philly podcast, True Crime, Haunted History, the coolest and creepiest places to visit. Welcome Welcome to to Twisted Twisted Philly. Winding Way looks exactly as it sounds. It's a winding road in a residential neighborhood in Marion Station, a suburb of Philadelphia just a few miles from West Philly but it might as well be another planet. Marion Station is a little section of Lower Marion, one of the wealthiest and most affluent communities in Montgomery County, Pennsylvania. Hell, it's probably one of the most affluent communities in the state and probably one of the wealthiest in the country. M. Night Shyamalan used to live there, as did Philadelphia DJ Pierre Robert, sports stars, celebrities, wealthy old money families. Anyone and everyone who can afford it lives in Lower Marion. That's a section of what we like to call the main line. I've talked about the main line before, the railroad that was installed to connect travelers from Philadelphia out to greener pastures in the 1800s. Depending on with whom you speak, some towns are considered the main line and others are not. To me, it's always been towns along Lancaster Avenue, an east-west route that runs from the Burbs into West Philly and eventually further into the city. Now, not every town along Lancaster Avenue qualifies as the main line, but I always thought it was anything from the edge of Philly, like Overbrook and Narberth, out as far as Devon and Paoli. 
If you view the main line with a more historic eye, it's primarily the towns within Lower Merion Township, the wealthier landowners from the 1800s and early 1900s, and the rest of the towns along that stretch of railroad were just wannabes. Not every street along the main line, or even in Lower Merion, is adorned with 200-year-old mansions, some that still have spring houses or even gatehouses on their property. Many of the homes are lovely, yet average. A three- or four-bedroom colonial with a small yard, narrow driveways, the houses are close enough to easily see your neighbors, notice if their lights are on, and hear their kids in the backyard adjacent to yours. And that's a good description of Winding Way. It's a pretty tree-lined street with brick and stone colonial homes. Homes that look like a tall, wide rectangle with two stories, large windows on either side of the front door, and usually four windows on the front of the house on the second floor. It's got a small front porch. They're quaint, pretty, and average. Yet today, these average properties sell for about a half a million dollars because of the zip code. It's our version of 90210. In 1997, one particular house on Winding Way, owned by Craig and Stephanie Rabinowitz, already had two mortgages, and they hadn't lived there very long, just under two years. Craig and Stephanie bought the house in June of 1995 for about $230,000. The young couple lived with Stephanie's parents for a year and a half before moving to Marion Station. They saved up money so they could buy a home of their own. It was quite an accomplishment to buy their first house, and in Lower Marion Township, no, it wasn't one of the grand mansions you'll find in other nearby neighborhoods, but it was a beautiful home, and it was theirs. Stephanie Rabinowitz was Stephanie Newman when she met Craig in 1983. She was only 16 years old. She was spending her summer in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania as a counselor in training at a sleepaway camp. That was pretty big when I was in junior high, and even when I was in high school. So many kids from the Philly Burbs went to overnight camp for four weeks or eight weeks, depending on the camp and your family's disposable income. Craig was older than Stephanie by almost four years, and she was taken with his charming, gregarious personality. He was studying at Temple University. He was a college man, and what teenage girl just a year or two shy from her high school graduation wouldn't be excited to catch the eye of a college guy? The two dated for seven years, through Stephanie's high school graduation, then graduation from Bryn Mawr College, and while Stephanie's parents liked Craig, I don't know if we could say they liked him. He came from a good family, a family that had money. Craig Rabinowitz wasn't used to making much effort to get along in life. Where Stephanie was driven in her schoolwork, Craig dropped out of Temple and went after a lot of jobs that really didn't pan out, mostly because he didn't demonstrate the commitment or determination that Stephanie did. And that seemed to be okay with Stephanie. She was a more structured individual, used to schedules and boundaries, and Craig was more like a butterfly always off at a Flyers game or playing softball with a local Jewish athletic league, flitting about the city with friends or gambling in Atlantic City where his parents had a condo. He flitted about and might have seemed like a bright, shiny force in Stephanie's more organized life. By the time Craig and Stephanie married, Stephanie was barely 23 years old and Craig was soon approaching 30. Most of his friends had stable careers by then, attorneys, accountants, businessmen, while Craig was, well, I wouldn't say floundering, but he was still figuring shit out. Meanwhile, Stephanie was studying at Temple University School of Law, the same university where Craig dropped out a few years earlier. Stephanie graduated from Temple the year after she and Craig married, and soon after graduation, she got a job as a summer clerk for the Center City law firm Feynman & Bach. Once she graduated, the firm hired her on full-time in 1992. 
Stephanie Rabinowitz wasn't just a Temple graduate or a Bryn Mawr graduate. She was a National Merit Scholar. She'd won the prestigious Moot Court Award at Temple. Stephanie was selected by Temple faculty to participate in an advocacy course. And to be selected, she had to be what Temple calls an outstanding law student devoted to excellence in written and oral advocacy. She won the Moot Court Competition. That's a program in which participants prepare briefs and present oral arguments in front of federal and state judges. Stephanie was wicked smart, and she set some pretty impressive goals for herself, although her friends called her goals traditional, being a lawyer, a wife, a mother, even living in Marion. And Stephanie didn't care what people called her goals. She knew what she wanted, and she went after it. Everything she set her mind to, she achieved through hard work, studying, and perseverance. By 1992, Stephanie had checked off most of the boxes on her list. Craig Rabinowitz? Check. Married? Check. Lawyer? Check. The house in Marion, Pennsylvania, and motherhood came just a few years later. In the first few years of marriage, Stephanie focused on her career as an attorney with Feynman & Bach in Center City. While she hadn't handled what the firm called big cases, she supported other experienced attorneys with their cases, and she was working towards handling smaller cases of her own. Her colleagues adored her. She was always pleasant to be around. She was incredibly organized and detailed, according to Mitchell Bach, one of the partners in the firm. Their clients liked Stephanie, and she was building the foundation to become a prominent, capable attorney. About a year after they bought their house on Winding Way, Craig and Stephanie Rabinowitz had their first child, a daughter. Those last two boxes on Stephanie's list got checked. Everyone who knew the couple thought they had the perfect life. They loved one another deeply. Craig and Stephanie had a large circle of friends whom they entertained quite frequently. They had the support of Stephanie's parents, Anne and Louis Newman, whenever they needed help with the baby. Everything was going exactly as Stephanie had hoped, including Craig's business. For the past six years, Craig Rabinowitz ran an importing business. He and a friend started the business soon after Craig and Stephanie were married. It was called Craig Vending. Oddly enough, both Craig and his friend had the same first name. Craig and his partner imported latex gloves, and they sold them to healthcare facilities. Soon after launching the company, Craig Rabinowitz's friend left the business, creating an opportunity for Craig to manage the company on his own. In 1992, Craig changed the name of the business to CNC Supplies Incorporated with the PA State Incorporation Bureau. Without a partner, Craig had less resources to import products, so he relied on investments from family and friends to fund his purchases. And everyone would make a decent return on their investment. Craig was able to purchase latex gloves much cheaper overseas, although he had to buy them in very large quantities. We're talking like shipping container quantities. And those shipping containers full of gloves could cost anywhere between ten dollars to $15,000 for one container. But he'd be able to sell the entire quantity for a profit, sometimes as much as 30 to 50% profit. Once Craig got the merchandise into the States, it was a lucrative venture with very little risk, and he had next to no overhead. He maintained a small office on Presidential Boulevard in Balakinwood, Pennsylvania, just a few miles from his home and the city. And he rented warehouse space along the Delaware River, down near the ports where the gloves were delivered. Craig spent most of his time as a salesman, taking meetings with companies around the Delaware Valley. That's the area including and surrounding Philadelphia. He'd take clients to lunch 
broker deals. Once he had enough product sold, he'd order more shipping containers. Sometimes, though, he needed to get the product first, which required him to front the expense, and then he'd recoup his expenses as he signed on more clients. For a long time, the ups and downs of Craig's business were easily manageable because Stephanie made a really good living working for Feynman and Bach. But after Haley was born, Stephanie Rabinowitz scaled back her hours. She only worked three days a week, which meant a pay cut, and Craig had to rely more heavily on investors. In the book Everybody's Best Friend, about Craig and Stephanie Rabinowitz by Ken Englade, I read a story Stephanie's mother, Ann Newman, told about an investment she and her husband made in Craig's business. According to Ann, Craig had an opportunity to get four shipping containers of latex gloves. But he didn't have the funds to front the purchase. He needed a loan for $88,000 plus interest. Now, he and Stephanie already had a second mortgage on their home, so the bank wouldn't approve him taking out another loan. Craig told the Newmans he needed to borrow just under hundred grand, but he'd make about $35,000 profit once he sold the gloves, which he'd be able to do in no time. So Stephanie's parents mortgaged their house to get a loan for Craig. In the summer of 1996, Craig Rabinowitz made a connection with a businessman in New York, someone with connections to companies overseas who would make it even easier and probably more affordable for Craig to import gloves and other products. This guy was a big deal. He'd pop into Philly, take a meeting with Craig. Often this guy would want to take those meetings at Delilah's Den, a prominent strip club in Philly. Then this guy would head back to New York or overseas. He was always traveling, always negotiating one sort of deal or another. Stephanie was excited about this contact. She'd never met him. Nobody met him. Actually, nobody even knew his name. But Craig talked about this guy and the growth this connection would bring to CNC Supplies Incorporated. On Tuesday, April 29th, 1997, Craig and Stephanie went out to dinner with Stephanie's parents, Ann and Louis Newman, to celebrate the end of Passover. They went to a restaurant called Thai Pepper in Ardmore, just a short drive from where Craig and Stephanie lived in Marion Station. After dinner, they drove back to Stephanie's house. She and Anne put on coffee, and Craig decided to take Haley for a walk around the neighborhood. It was a little after 8.30 at night. By the time Craig returned home, his in-laws had left. Stephanie put baby Haley down for the night, and Craig cracked open a few beers for them to enjoy before they went to bed. Stephanie really wasn't feeling the beer, nor was she quite ready to go to sleep, so she told Craig she was going to take a bath. Craig settled in with his beer in one hand and the TV remote in the other. He turned on the Flyers game. The Stanley Cup playoffs began just a few weeks earlier, and the city was abuzz with Flyers fever. We didn't win the Cup that year, although we made it all the way till the end until the Red Wings beat us in June. According to Craig Rabinowitz, about 20 minutes after Stephanie got in the tub, he heard a thud, a noise that sounded as what he described as if a shampoo bottle fell off the edge of the tub. He didn't think much of it and continued watching the game. As folks do when they're concentrating on a game, they lose track of time. Craig didn't realize how late it had gotten and Stephanie was still in the bathroom. He went upstairs to check on her and found her unconscious and unresponsive, still naked in the tub. Craig Rabinowitz claimed he froze when he saw his wife. Then he jumped in the tub. He tried to lift her out, but he was only able to hold her head above water. He realized he needed to call 911, so he got out of the tub, called emergency services, got back into the tub with Stephanie, then got out of the tub again to go downstairs and unlock the front door so police would be able to walk in when they arrived. 
Craig Rabinowitz called 911 around 12.30 a.m. on Wednesday, April 30th, just a few hours after he and his wife arrived home after a night out with her parents. The first officer arrived less than 10 minutes later, Upper Marion Police Officer James Driscoll. According to the police affidavit, when Officer Driscoll let himself into the house, he went upstairs and found Craig Rabinowitz in the tub with his wife. He was on his knees, Stephanie was on her back, and Craig was holding her head above the water. Officer Driscoll helped Craig lift Stephanie out of the tub and onto the floor, and then the officer performed CPR. Paramedics arrived a few minutes later. They continued CPR and decided to transport Stephanie to nearby Lankanaw Hospital. Craig Rabinowitz changed his clothes and followed Stephanie to the hospital while a neighbor came to the house to take care of Haley. Within an hour, Upper Marion Police Detective Charles Craig was on the scene at 526 Winding Way. Just about the same time, Detective Craig began his investigation at the Rabinowitz home. Doctors told Stephanie's husband they were unable to revive her. His wife of seven years, the woman he'd been with since they were teenagers for close to 14 years, happy, healthy 29-year-old Stephanie Rabinowitz was dead. And no one really knew why. Detective Craig finished his preliminary investigation of the Rabinowitz house. There were no signs of forced entry, no signs of struggle anywhere in the house. The tub still had water in it. He spoke with Officer Driscoll, the first officer on the scene, and everything pointed to exactly what it looked like, an accidental death. When he arrived at the hospital, Detective Craig questioned the emergency room doctors at Lankanoff for a cause of death, and there really wasn't one. Doctors said it could have been a heart attack, maybe it was an aneurysm or a stroke. It's possible she slipped and hit her head on the tub and passed out. There were no signs of trauma on Stephanie's body. She had a small bruise or two on her knee and her elbow, the sort of marks I call mystery bruises because you never notice them, and if someone points them out to you, you don't even know how the hell you got them. So there was really no way to be certain what killed Stephanie Rabinowitz without an autopsy. In Jewish tradition, burials take place as soon as possible, often within 24 hours if arrangements can be made that quickly. Jewish faith also typically prohibits embalming or anything that would delay the body's natural decay. Autopsies are also often prohibited unless absolutely medically necessary because it desecrates the body which should be treated as sacred in life and in death. Stephanie's parents arrived at Lankanaw Hospital shortly after she was pronounced dead. They waited with Craig and Stephanie's friends for hours expecting their daughter's body to be released, but that didn't happen. Although there were no signs of foul play, Upper Marion Police and the county medical examiner had concerns about a vibrant 29-year-old woman dying unexpectedly in her bathtub, and they wanted an autopsy. Stephanie Rabinowitz's autopsy was performed by Philadelphia Deputy Medical Examiner Ian Hood. The Montgomery County coroner was already working on another case. Hood was brought in so there would be no delays in Stephanie's autopsy. The first indication something was amiss were petechial hemorrhages on Stephanie's forehead. Petechia are tiny red spots that appear on the skin because of broken blood vessels. Besides the petechial hemorrhages, Dr. Hood noticed two very faint fingerprint bruises under Stephanie's chin, high up on her neck. They weren't dark, and they would have been hard to see when Stephanie Rabinowitz was brought into Lankanaw Emergency Room. Dr. Hood dissected Stephanie's neck. And under the skin, beneath those very faint bruises, were significant signs of trauma, indicative of manual strangulation. As the autopsy continued, Dr. Hood was able to identify her undigested stomach contents. He knew exactly what Stephanie had for dinner at Thai Pepper the night she died. 
and based on the state of her stomach contents. Stephanie had eaten about 90 minutes before her death, which would have put her time of death closer to 10 p.m., not 12.30, which is when her husband Craig Rabinowitz called 911. Stephanie Rabinowitz's obituary appeared in the Philadelphia Inquirer on Thursday, May 1st, 1997. The story of her death was reported as a tragic accident at home. Two days later, the headlines changed. On Saturday, May 3rd, Stephanie's death was ruled a homicide by manual strangulation, and the next day, Assistant District Attorney Bruce Castor hinted the authorities already had a suspect. Haley's first birthday party was planned for Sunday, May 4th, just four days after her mother's death. Later that month, Craig, along with Stephanie's mom and her best friend, planned a 30th surprise birthday party for Stephanie, and instead, they attended her funeral. Now, remember, when Detective Charles Craig investigated the Rabinowitz home, there was no sign of a break-in. All the doors and windows were locked, except for the front door, which Craig unlocked before Officer Driscoll arrived after the 911 call. There was no sign of a struggle. There was nothing to indicate there'd been a fight between Stephanie and Craig. So who was this suspect? Stephanie's family, Craig's family, all of their friends, everyone thought a stranger must have gotten into the house. Maybe a door had been unlocked earlier in the evening and a stranger got in. Could he have been in the house even before Stephanie and Craig returned home from dinner that night? Was he hiding? Until later that evening, he saw Stephanie get in the tub. Craig didn't hear anything because he was sucked into the TV. Maybe the TV was loud and the stranger strangled Stephanie and left. He stole nothing. He left no evidence behind. That theory made absolutely no sense. There were only three people in the house on Winding Way the night Stephanie died. Stephanie Rabinowitz, her husband Craig, and their infant daughter Haley. Something about Stephanie's death didn't sit right with Officer Driscoll. He was the responding officer who got the 911 call on Wednesday, April 30th. When he saw Stephanie Rabinowitz in the tub, he noticed she had jewelry on. She wore a watch, her wedding band, and she had bracelets on each arm. I never wear jewelry when I shower, and I honestly can't recall a time having ever worn jewelry when I've taken a bath. I don't wear a watch, but I would imagine, unless it's waterproof, no one is wearing a watch in the tub. Certainly not Stephanie. Her mother remarked to author Ken Englade that Stephanie had very simple tastes. Yes, she wanted to live in Marion, but she wasn't showy. She didn't care for expensive purses or fancy jewelry. Her watch was an inexpensive, practical brand, probably not the sort of watch that would survive being submerged in water. Less than one week after Stephanie's death, her husband, Craig Rabinowitz, was arrested for her murder. The district attorney's office charged Rabinowitz with first and third degree murder, voluntary manslaughter, and making a false report to police. They were covering all their bases. Once the arrest happened, Every skeleton you could possibly imagine started falling out of the Rabinowitz closet. Almost a month before her death, on April 3, 1997, Craig Rabinowitz took out a $1.5 million life insurance policy on Stephanie. He was named as the only beneficiary. Haley's name, their daughter, was nowhere to be found on the policy. Craig sent in the first payment of $800, but he never processed the papers. According to the insurance company, a signed policy had to be returned by April 30th for it to be valid. As of Stephanie's death, no signed documents had been submitted. 
And it's not like an insurance company is going to make an exception about something like that. As much as someone might want to, if there truly had been an accidental death, But if they make that sort of an exception, it opens a significant precedent with hundreds, if not thousands, of other customers. So the insurance policy was really null and void. Initially, no one believed Craig Rabinowitz could have killed Stephanie. He was absolutely head over heels in love with his wife. He had been since he met her when she was 16 and he was almost 20. Even Stephanie's parents couldn't believe it. They stood by Craig so much that according to the Philadelphia Inquirer, Anne and Louis Newman were one of 25 different family members who agreed to put up 75 grand each to pay Craig's bond. His lawyers petitioned the court for bail, but the DA had no intentions of granting bail at any cost. Eventually, he was swayed and he set bail at $5 million. And this was a huge source of angst and chagrin and frustration for Craig's defense attorneys. They felt like $5 million bail was something that should be applied to a millionaire, not someone like Craig Rabinowitz. One of the skeletons that fell out of Craig's closet was literally in his closet. Police found a bag hidden above a small panel in the ceiling of his and Stephanie's closet. It was a shopping bag filled with papers. About two weeks before Stephanie's death, Craig Rabinowitz wrote out a financial account detailing money he owed to every investor in C&C Supplies Incorporated. He'd listed each investor, how much he borrowed, the small amounts he'd repaid them thus far, and how much he still had to repay. Between what he'd borrowed from Stephanie's family, her parents and her brother, from friends under the guise of investing in his latex glove company, the second and third mortgage on the house, credit card bills, Craig Rabinowitz was over $800,000 in debt. And a big chunk of that change was spent at one of the poshest strip clubs in Philly, Delilah's Den. Philadelphia is the home of the greatest symbol of freedom in our nation. No, not the Liberty Bell, but Delilah's, the Gentleman's Club and Steakhouse. Delilah's is the premier destination for business travelers, celebrities, and uninhibited Philadelphians alike. As you enter, your eyes quickly adjust to the enormous main showroom, which boasts a 60-foot runway. Explore some more, and you'll find the Samson Suite, Skyboxes, and Champagne Courts, where performances continue on a more personal level. Delilah's hosts four major spectaculars every year, including Delilah's Diamond G-String Award. From international stars to the top entertainers in the world, Delilah's always showcases the biggest, the bravest, and the best. Remember that big-time businessman that Craig met that summer in 1996 who was going to help expand his business and liked to take meetings with Craig at Delilah's? Yeah, that was bullshit. Craig dropped a few thousand dollars a week at Delilah's, buying Delilah's dollars. Delilah's dollars are like Monopoly money you used to tip the strippers to buy lap dances. You gave the club cash or your credit card, and they gave you back the equivalent in Delilah's dollars. Craig Rabinowitz spent all his money at Delilah's on one woman, Shannon Reinert, known around Delilah's by her stage name, Summer. That bag in Craig's closet was filled with receipts for Delilah's, plus receipts for the old Adams Mark Hotel on City Line Avenue. Lots of us remember that hotel. It actually was a pretty decent place, although it wasn't always home to decent activities. Craig had hotel receipts, Delilah's receipts, receipts from Tiffany's, and he sure as shit wasn't buying Stephanie jewelry from Tiffany's. He bought summer furniture, all sorts of gifts, besides spending a few days a week getting lap dances in the champagne room. 
It was easy for Craig to spend so much time at Delilah's. He had his own business. He made his own hours. A few days a week, he watched Haley in the mornings when a nanny didn't come to his house. And in the afternoon, while his mother-in-law took the baby, Craig would go to his office. But he wasn't really at an office. He was hanging out at the strip club. That makes him a shitty husband. It doesn't necessarily make him a murderer. At least, not yet. It's understandable Craig's business was struggling. He spent so much time and money on summer, he had very little time for client meetings. Because there were no clients. There was no business. The forensic accountant wasn't able to find one purchase of latex gloves. Not one sale of latex gloves. There was no business at all. It was bullshit. Now, when he first started the business in 1990 with a friend of his, yes, there were actually transactions happening. They were trying to get a business off the ground, and it was a business selling latex gloves. But when Craig's friend left and he took the business over on his own in 1992, that's when the actual business stopped. Craig Rabinowitz borrowed thousands from Stephanie's parents, friends, his family, plus the second and third mortgages on the house on Winding Way. He used the money to pay his mortgage and buy season tickets to the Flyers and take that big gang of friends he and Stephanie had to his parents' place in Atlantic City a few times a year. Craig Rabinowitz had a lifestyle. He grew up with a lifestyle, and he wanted to maintain it. Unlike Stephanie, who worked hard to build a successful career and earn money for a job well done, Craig was too busy figuring out how to do the least amount of work possible. I don't blame Summer in this situation. Craig Rabinowitz was the one who was married, not Summer. And who knows what he told her. If this man was willing to drop a few thousand dollars a week on lap dances, why not? Summer worked for her money, too. It was a different type of job, but she was trying to keep a roof over her kid's head. There were so many financial documents to sort through in that bag the police found in the Rabinowitz closet. The ledger Craig wrote out on a legal tablet listed $1.4 million to cover all of his expenses, his loans, money that he owed to family and friends, and it would leave him about a half a million after he got out of debt. Where do you think Craig expected that payload to come from? The life insurance policy he took out on Stephanie on April 3, 1997 just a little less than a month before she died. Craig Rabinowitz was obsessed with Summer. He wasn't just taking a break from the stress of being a husband and father, hitting the strip clubs with a few friends for a drink and a dance once in a while. He spent hours there. Sometimes he spent days there every week. To Craig, he had a relationship with Summer. He loved her. He wanted to be with Summer, not Stephanie. But he also knew he'd need money to be with Summer. She was used to him spending thousands of dollars a week on her. If the money dried up, would their relationship dry up as well? Once news broke about Craig Rabinowitz's relationship with Summer, Philadelphia newspapers looked more like the National Enquirer than award-winning publications. I put a copy of one issue of the Philadelphia Daily News in the episode trailer I created. The cover featured a photograph of Summer with her leg wrapped around a pole in a strapless dress, and the headline read, Season's Greetings. According to Assistant District Attorney Bruce Castor, that issue of the Philadelphia Daily News sold more copies than any other issue in the history of the paper up until that point in time. 
on any given day, you would see a photograph of Summer on the front page of our newspapers. Summer next to a pole in a man's dress shirt and nothing else. Summer bent over a chair. Summer in an outfit that was like a cross between Joan of Arc and Princess Leia's slave costume. And somewhere in the story would be a much smaller photograph of Stephanie with her wavy brown hair and her big brown eyes. Summer wasn't Craig's first time stepping out on his wife. In 1993, Craig Rabinowitz was accused of hiring escorts, visiting sex workers at a brothel, and bringing them to his home between 1990 and 1992. Yep, during the first two years of his marriage. He was caught, along with other Johns, as a result of a wiretap sting run by the Philadelphia District Attorney's Office. It turned out this ring of sex workers was run by a former police lieutenant and his estranged wife. Ah, uh, yes, we don't call this twisted filly for nothing. Instead of being prosecuted, Craig Rabinowitz was given the opportunity to testify against former police lieutenant Joe Kelly and his estranged wife, Jane. Craig agreed, and he was terrified of Stephanie finding out. During his testimony, Craig Rabinowitz admitted he paid Jane for sex about a half dozen times. I don't see how Stephanie didn't know about this. Granted, it was before she graduated from Temple, before she started working for Feynman and Bach in Center City. But how do you get busted for repeatedly hiring sex workers, bringing them to your home, testifying against the people running the organization, and your wife has no idea? Probably the worst piece of evidence found in that bag in his closet were pawn shop receipts for jewelry Craig Rabinowitz sold on May 1st. The day after Stephanie died, the same day, Stephanie's family and friends were sitting Shiva. Shiva is a period of mourning practiced in Judaism. It's often a week-long period when family mourn the loss of a loved one, often a first-degree loved one, like your parent or your child. Craig didn't leave the house that day because he needed to catch his breath or he was feeling overwhelmed from the death of his wife. He left the house to sell Stephanie's jewelry heirloom pieces that had been in her family for a long time, including her engagement ring. Her fucking husband sold her engagement ring the day after she died. That may have been the straw that broke Anne and Louis Newman's back. They had been a source of support for Craig. They stood behind him after he was arrested. They offered to contribute to his bail. They were prepared to be character witnesses for him. But day after day in May 1997, as more details emerged about Craig Rabinowitz and his dirty, underhanded, cheating, lying, stealing, fraud, how much could Stephanie's parents take? After finding the receipts and financial records in Craig Rabinowitz's closet, police were granted a warrant for his credit card statements. There are so many details that came out of those statements, and all the details went into police affidavits. In the months before Stephanie's death, Craig Rabinowitz spent over $28,000 at Delilah's. That's a lot of fucking lap dances. Another item police found in the Rabinowitz house was a prescription for Ambien. The medical examiner ran a toxicology screen on Stephanie as part of the autopsy, and when the results came back, they found a considerably high dose of Ambien in her system. The night Stephanie died, Craig Rabinowitz spoke to police. He walked them through what happened, what time they got home from dinner, they'd had a beer. He said Stephanie had a prescription for Ambien because she sometimes had trouble sleeping, and he thought maybe she took one before her bath, but he couldn't be entirely sure. Ambien wasn't Stephanie's prescription. It was Craig's. 
The name on the prescription bottle was Craig Rabinowitz. It went on like this for months. More loans, more money on summer. The suicide note Craig supposedly wrote the day after Stephanie died. A phone call from Summer an hour and a half before Craig called 911. A getaway suitcase found in the trunk of his car. Stacks of cash hidden in bedroom drawers. The Montgomery County PA District Attorney's Office had so much evidence for motive. They may not have had physical evidence showing Craig murdered Stephanie, but there was no other adult in the home who could have done it. The autopsy proved Stephanie Rabinowitz was strangled. The Ambien in her system was from Craig's prescription. Craig Rabinowitz's trial was scheduled for October 30, 1997. Assistant District Attorney Bruce Castor was armed for bear, and Rabinowitz gave him more than enough ammunition. To everyone's shock, Craig Rabinowitz entered a guilty plea. He stood crying before the judge and told the courtroom Stephanie came to him in a dream the night before his trial. Craig Rabinowitz claimed he and Stephanie were seated at a table holding hands. In this dream, Stephanie told him, it's time to do the right thing. It's time to tell everyone what really happened. Trust me when I tell you that is complete bullshit. I do believe our loved ones who have passed on find a way to talk to us in our dreams. But I do not believe for one minute Craig's motivation for pleading guilty and confessing was because Stephanie's spirit visited him. I agree with Assistant District Attorney Bruce Castor, who said he believed Craig Rabinowitz pled guilty because he didn't want to go through the public humiliation of sitting in a courtroom with his mother, Stephanie's family, their friends, and have everyone hear out loud what he did to swindle all of them, how he cheated on his wife and then murdered Stephanie so he could live this blown-up fantasy life in his own mind with Summer, who really had no interest in an actual relationship with him. Craig Rabinowitz told the court what happened the night Stephanie died. While Stephanie put Haley down for bed, Craig got them each a beer. Stephanie said she wasn't in the mood for a drink, but Craig encouraged her to have one anyway. He dosed Stephanie's beer with his Ambien because he claims he didn't want her to suffer when he killed her. The Ambien knocked Stephanie out and Craig Rabinowitz carried her upstairs to the bathroom. He took off her clothes, but he forgot to take off her jewelry. He filled the tub with water, placed her in the bath, and his plan was to hold her underwater until she drowned. But the water woke Stephanie up, and she struggled. Craig's plan to knock Stephanie out with Ambien so she wouldn't suffer didn't work at all. She suffered for four minutes while Craig strangled her. He wrapped his hands around her neck, high up under her chin, while their baby was asleep down the hall. He choked the life out of his wife, Stephanie Rabinowitz, and then Craig waited two hours before calling 911. He blamed the murder on feeling like he'd been controlled for 13 years. Really, you're controlled. You go to strip clubs and brothels. You have season tickets to the Flyers. You don't work a normal job. Actually, you don't work any job. You go to lunch with Stephanie's friends because your hours are so flexible. You play in a softball league and a deck hockey league. You travel to New York for business trips that are really bullshit trips, probably hitting brothels there too, that sounds about as far from being controlled as you can possibly get. Craig also blamed the murder on a lack of love growing up. 
through his attorneys, Craig claimed the first time his mother ever told him she loved him was the day he was arrested. Craig blamed the murder on not having sex with his wife. He said they hardly ever had sex during the more than 13 years they'd been together. Craig Rabinowitz was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Today, he is 54 years old and is a resident at the State Correctional Institute in Hootsdale. It's about three and a half hours west of Philadelphia. A year after Stephanie's murder, Craig Rabinowitz was interviewed by Philadelphia Weekly. In that interview, Craig said, Steffi was a wonderful woman and my best friend, and I miss her more than anyone. But she, well, she lived her life like a calendar, strict, planned, regimented, and I was more easygoing, more go with the flow. A lot of times I felt emasculated. I had 13 years of resentment inside me. If Governor Ridge decided tomorrow that I'm a hell of a guy and should be released, first thing I'd do would be to go see Shannon. During his first year in jail, Craig Rabinowitz wrote frequent letters to Shannon Reinert, the exotic dancer who is known as Summer. She never replied to any of them. Stephanie's daughter Haley was raised by her grandmother, Stephanie's mom, Ann Newman. Haley just turned 22 years old. While she never knew her mother, I have no doubt Anne, Stephanie's brother Ira, her large circle of friends she had since high school and college, did everything they could to keep the memory of Stephanie alive for Haley. And that's still not the same as growing up with the mother who loved her dearly. I remembered so much about this case, so many of the salacious headlines The photographs of Summer overshadowing the photographs of Stephanie Rabinowitz in our Philly papers. The scandalous stories about all the money Craig Rabinowitz took from practically everyone he knew. The story about Craig selling Stephanie's engagement ring while her family was at her house mourning her death. I think Craig Rabinowitz may be the biggest scoundrel this city has ever seen. And we've seen our fair share of scoundrels. Stephanie was so young when she met him. He knew her for a long time before they got married. And if Craig Rabinowitz felt Stephanie was too structured for him or too rigid, he didn't have to marry her. He shit all over their marriage for years. And I believe Craig Rabinowitz shit on his Jewish faith too. I think he counted on an expeditious burial as a result of their faith. He probably never imagined anyone would ask for an autopsy. And if they did, I'm sure he believed that he and Stephanie's family could prevent it, again, because of their faith. But County, Lower Marion Police, the Philadelphia Medical Examiner worked quickly so they could uncover the reason Stephanie died while returning her body to her family as quickly as possible. They wanted to do their jobs and also respect the family's faith. Her tombstone reads, Stephanie Newman, not Stephanie Rabinowitz. Her family didn't want her married name on her grave. They wanted to erase Craig from Stephanie's life. I believe Haley also goes by her mother's maiden name. I think about how excited Stephanie was when she met Craig Rabinowitz. He went to her senior prom in high school. They dated while she attended Bryn Mawr College. They were teenage sweethearts. And one spring evening... After they had a lovely dinner with her parents, Craig Rabinowitz drugged Stephanie, tried to drown her, and then strangled her. I'd like to share a very special thank you to Jeffrey M. for the voice acting you heard in this episode. 
Thank you, as always, to Emmy Sarah for the music you heard in this and almost every episode of Twisted Philly. You can find out more about Emmy on her website at emmysarah.com, and you can download her music on iTunes. As always, thank you for listening. That's it from me. Ciao for now, Twisters. <laughs>